Bald Men on Campus with Jay Billis, LaFonso Ellis, and Seth Greenberg. Welcome to Bald Men on Campus. I am Seth Greenberg, the baldest of bald. I'm joined by Jay Billis, who's wearing a hat because he wants to make sure his head doesn't get burnt today as he torches the golf course. And then LaFonso Ellis, who permanently wakes up with a smile on his face. It's absolutely disgusting, quite honestly. Uh, and he's read every single book that's behind him to his right, my left, uh, which is very impressive. That's very impressive. And Billis, and Billis had the gumption to ask him if they were all colored in, which I would have never done to a guy whose name is in the Ring of Honor at Notre Dame. But speaking of the Ring of Honor, uh, my phone has been uh, ringing off the hook a little bit lately. and I. I and I've, I've been giving a lot of thought to this. And I, it's probably outside of what every other people are thinking about. NIL is a fraud. It's an absolute fraud because it's name, image, and likeness. That's what players are supposed to be monetizing. And collectives have nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. Collectives have to do with the name on the front of the jersey, not the name of the back of the jersey. Uh, name, image, and likeness is just a way or a term to be used for basically going and creating a free market uh, to basically pay players legally. I mean, that's what it really is. I mean, I think there are opportunities that that people are getting through name, image, and likeness that are totally great and and true. But the way it's being used, the way the phrase is being used today, and what's happening in college basketball today, and how parents are looking at name, image, and likeness has nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. It has to do with their children are commodities and they're going to monetize or, you know, monetize their, their skill set, which is fine. I have no problem with it, but let's call it what it is. Uh, there are some real name, image, and likeness deals, but a majority of these deals today that are happening in the recruiting process have nothing to do with the, the the reason the rule and, and and was put into effect. Someone should own their own name image like this. There's no doubt about it. But let's call it what it is. What it's turned into is something very different. Your guys' opinion. Well, I, I think you're right in, in the way it's operating and going to operate. And I think that was a natural extension of of sort of the the idea that players could monetize their name image and likeness the the problem is we can't uh the 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 system can't shut off the flow of money and it never has been able to and it certainly can't now so as you guys know there's always been this principle of amateurism which says that that you are allowed you the player are allowed only what we say you are allowed that was what amateurism was defined right. as. It's defined as whatever we say it is at a given time. First, it was no scholarships back in the dark ages. Then it was scholarship only. Then it was scholarship plus stipend and all these other things. And now, uh, you know, the idea, I think it's difficult, Seth and Fonz, the idea that you can separate uh, the value of a, of a player, uh, it, sort of their name, image, like to separate that from their skill set. Because their their value uh, of their name is inextricably linked to their skill set, and these collectives are are they're everywhere now, and that's not going to stop absent congressional intervention. Um, but what they're doing is they're they're cutting deals with players and saying that we can guarantee you this amount of money, 
but uh, you, you're going to have to do appearances for it, charity work, things like that. And it's extended out over time. So theoretically, um, if you extend out payments for if a player is going to do uh, charity work and you get $20,000 per you know, charity uh, task, that's going to be stretched out over a period of years. And in order to, to realize upon that guarantee, you're, you're going to have to stay there. Uh, so there's a retention element to it, too, that could be good for these schools overall. But but look, the NCAA said it from the very beginning. Once players are allowed uh, name, image and likeness rights, they're professional. And so they're professional. And the idea that we can stop it, we can't. And I agree. And you guys have heard me say this, and I believe this to be true and always have. The best way to do this is for the universities to sign these players to contracts, whether they're they're playing contracts, personal services contracts, whatever, and for the universities to do it. Uh, these collectives are just another way to uh, to do the same thing. And uh, I'm okay with it. I understand reasonable minds can differ on these things, and, and it is very different from the system we've had, as is the transfer portal. But these things aren't going away. And when you run a multi-billion dollar entertainment industry off college campuses, the idea that you can limit what, what the, the revenue drivers are going to earn, uh, it, it seems to me to be folly. And, uh, and I think we're seeing that right now. Yeah, absent, absent governance, uh, it, it's really the wild, wild west. And the, the way I see it is... The, the imbalance is created because we, we don't have a set kind of rule but for everyone to operate by. And so let's say, Jay, in North Carolina, you would be allowed to receive a benefit that I may not here in Indiana and Seth may not in Connecticut. And so my issue has always been, uh, how do you level the playing field across the board and, and absence governance? We won't be able to. And Seth, I absolutely agree with you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's name, image, and likeness in name only because you guys bring up the collectives and uh, these collectives are seem to be not only sprouting up more and more throughout the country, but the access to resources is just incredible. And that's what I was getting at earlier without any governance, any rules in place. Uh, now, uh, I do feel people in different states and in different locales have a, a pretty large uh, <laughs> advantage over those and others. And so I'd like to see some type. I, I don't know if it's congressional or not, Jay, but we do need some rules in place to balance the playing field. It has to be congressional because when and I, I take your point uh, that that it feels like the wild, wild west. But the way I see it, the wild, wild west is where everybody but a college athlete lives. And that is you can monetize whatever you want in the marketplace, given your, your talents, skills, and marketability. So when, when we talk about uh, governance and, and rules, what we're really talking about are limitations. And what, what the law allows are no limitations on, on anyone else. There are no limitations on coaches or administrators or any other student other than an athlete. And the NCAA knows now, after losing that Supreme Court case nine to nothing, that any governance they put into this area is going to be challenged in court and they are going to lose. That's why they're not acting. And that's why the only hope that they have to limit athletes and to have, uh, Fonz, as, as you, you point out, to have rules that 
uh, would would quote unquote level the playing field mm-hmm. to where everybody gets the same thing. The Congress has to do that. Absent a federal law, uh, we're not going to have that. Just like we don't have the same state taxes. Mm-hmm. So one could argue that uh, it provides that there's a huge advantage to Texas, Nevada, and Florida yes. in getting coaches and other administrators because they don't have state income tax. So where Seth is in Connecticut, there, there's there's really high income tax there on a state level. So you could argue that it's harder for UConn to hire a coach than it is for Florida or UNLV or the University of Texas because of, of, of state, state tax. taxation laws. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's not a level playing field. There's not a level playing field in, in any regard with regard to interstate commerce because all these different states have different state laws. Uh, so the idea, it, it's, it's difficult to, to, to net out an athlete and say, okay, you're the only one that's gonna be limited and to have that be legal. And, and that, that's really the rub here. I, look, I agree with everything you're saying there, but like the whole thing is fair market value. I mean, there's no such thing as fair market value. And like these collectives- well, what, what do you mean by that? Flesh that out a little well, bit. What do you mean there's no well, such well, thing? Well, 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 like, well, I mean, like fair market value for an appearance, all right? What, what is an appearance fee? First of all, th- those collectives that are being tied into nonprofits, where is that going to impact? Like what we're doing right now is not sustainable, big picture, unless you get a- huge booster that's going to put a sum of money and you're going to live off of that, basically the interest. And, you know, like say I'm going to use Matt Ishby as an example, Michigan state, he gives Michigan state $20 million. They invest that $20 million or the collective invest that $20 million. They know exactly what they're going to return on their investments can be every year. Then they create a budget to live off that, that interest and it becomes sustainable. That's number one. Number two is fair market value is it's supposed to be, you're being paid for, for work rendered. Not, not your play, but 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 what the actual work that you do that's rendered or the impact. So like, you know, who's going to set the market for to go do a clinic for uh, for an hour at a boys and girls club? And then the last thing would be what 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 the people that are investing in collectives, what what that's going to impact their is that going to impact their taxes? Is that going to be a write off? Uh, is that going to be considered a nonprofit? It can't be a nonprofit, can it? Uh, you know, again, you know better than me. I'm, these are questions I'm asking. Uh, eventually, with these large sums of money that these boosters or friends of programs are investing, uh, they're not going towards seat licensing. They're not going towards parking. They're not going towards uh, a tax credit. Eventually, don't you think that we get to a point where it's going to be hard to sustain? And like your idea about uh, having a contract, you know, might be the Quite honestly, might be the answer because the way yeah. it's being done now, I don't think it's sustainable over a long period of time because there's got to be an end to the giving when you don't get anything in return. Does that make well, any you, sense? You, yeah, it does make sense, but I, I do think it's sustainable the same way. I mean, there have been similar arguments that have been put forth with regard to facility spending and what people call the arms race in, uh, in college sports. And it's proven to be sustainable because the revenues keep going up and they're going to continue to go up. I mean, all these all these different conferences have their media rights deals coming up and, and the numbers are astronomical. So 30 years ago, this would have been unthinkable. Uh, so it, it is sustainable as to the, I, I believe, um, as to the nonprofit status, the collective can be nonprofit, but, but that doesn't mean that there aren't tax consequences to the player. 
but but th- those are fine. There's you know there's if you're making money, everybody should should have to pay tax on it. That's not an issue. And if it if it uh, if it's a problem that somebody has to pay tax, then don't do it. Um, I, it but you know when you start talking about or when we talk about the idea of of now that this collective money, so boosters and and supporters of university that used to give money just to the school now may give some to the school and some to a collective. So the question isn't the amount of money, it's whose money is it? And now the players are able to compete in the marketplace for these dollars. And the schools are going, wait a minute, back when we restricted them to zero, uh, we got all that money and we could do with it what we wanted. And now that may limit the amount of money we have because uh, some of it's going to the players. And, and that's, that's a shift in the marketplace. Um, but and then one last thing, as to your question on uh, who sets the market for an appearance at a boys and girls club, well, the market is whatever somebody's willing to pay. So if if the collective, I think it's called Country Roads Collective at uh, at West Virginia, if they're willing to pay twenty five thousand dollars for an appearance at a boys and girls club, and Bowling Green is able to pay five thousand. That's a market that, that it, it's that's set just as just as Bowling Green cannot pay their coach as much as West Virginia pays their coach. That that's a that's a similar market force. So I, I'm not worried about uh, personally, I'm not worried about those things working themselves out. Somebody may overpay. Uh, somebody may underpay, uh, but it'll figure itself out pretty quickly, just as like all the different state laws that we've seen, all these different collectives my perspective is that's what competition looks like. And now we're seeing competition in the marketplace and, and it's a shift from what we're used to, but it, it, it's no different than what we see in any other area of the, the industry, whether it's facility spending, coaches, salary, travel, food, whatever, uh, everybody's doing what puts them in the best position uh, going forward and collectives, uh, you know, what, what athletes are paid is, is going to be no different. You, so you think uh, donations to a collective? See, I, I I spoke to a tax guy and said that's going to be challenged by the IRS. Donations to a collective, uh, in terms of a tax benefit for the person contributing, uh, is going to really have a hard time standing up uh, to the tax codes. Again, I don't know anything about it. I was just spoke. Well, that may be for the contributor. Him. Yeah. So the contributor yeah, yeah. that contributes to the collective, it may not be be uh, deemed a charitable contribution. Right. Uh, that 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 I can see being an issue uh, with, with tax authorities, but however they choose to uh, to to deal with that um, from a from a legal standpoint, people will make their judgments from there. So if if you're better off doing it a different way, uh, it, this will all find its level, uh, and and players will they're going to be paid in some way, shape, or form. Uh, because they're they're necessary and they're valuable. Uh, so whether it's through the school, it's through a collective, uh, we, we, we'll find we'll find the level here. Because one thing I know for sure, or at least I believe, I shouldn't say I know. The one thing I believe for sure is that that uh, player acquisition is going to continue to be the lifeblood of, of these sports. And uh, as same as, as the acquisition of a great coach, you, you have to have great players to win. You have to have great coaches to win. Uh, those are all tied into winning. 
Uh, Jay, I agree with you, but you know, the, the first question and it kind of goes off to, and I wanted to bring it back to this. Uh, what we were talking about last week is that uh, I talked to 10 different guys this week. And they said the first question a parent used to ask is about academics, which really wasn't real. I mean, it was asked, you know, but maybe not as sincere. The first question that they are asked without a doubt before anything else is what's what's my NIL deal going to be look like? That's the first question. And and I and that like I had very and not even some of my closest friends I've had. Other guys said, how would you deal with this? And, you know, my, my line, which was, is very vanilla, would be I would start my meeting with the players and, look, we have NIL and we're, our, our players are going to be well taken care of, but that's not the reason you should come here. The reason you come here is X, Y, and Z. And you got to lay it out right in front before actually the families ask because they're making a 100% short-term business decision as to like, I'll, I'll use Notre Dame as an example, mm-hmm. right? Notre Dame, I don't know where they are with the collective. I don't know where they are bonds with NIL. Obviously, Notre Dame has very, very wealthy alumni. Sure. Notre Dame, even Duke, those are elite, elite clubs to be involved with. They're the elite organization. That's not a one-year NIL deal when you go to Notre Dame. Notre Dame, you know, and, and the Dukes and the cert- there are certain schools out there that that's a lifetime NIL deal in a lot of ways because of the network that you develop through being associated with those institutions that look after each other well past someone's playing. How do you explain that to a family when they're looking at a short-term return as opposed to a long-term investment? Yeah. Seth, um, Seth I think some, I think my, my sense is some, some will get it and others won't. You guys now know that I'm I'm not super a super emotional guy, but as a young dude, I had to come to grips with something that I had never really thought of. And and the fact is, and it's sad, but as a 17, 18 year old, that I was a commodity, right? And it's interesting because uh, your the the your circles of influence, whether it be your family, friends, etc., you can kind of feel it, but you always kind of push it away and say, no, 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 no. I, I'm a person. I'm a human. I'm respected. Etc. The moment that I learned that I was a commodity, it kind of changed the way that I approached it. And and it's interesting, Seth, because uh, going when when I was being recruited by Notre Dame, the final four schools, UCLA, Notre Dame, Illinois, Syracuse, is the the getting an education was important. And why was it important? Because the education in my mind would allow me to be able to do what I wanted to do, which is to be able to take care of my mom and take care of my family uh, who who lived in poverty almost all of my life. Right. And so coming in today, now all of a sudden, you know, I, I can imagine that the people in my corner NIL would be important because, well, that poverty is not going away for four years. And so how can I best put myself in position to be able to take care of some of my familial needs now uh, while being with a view to the future. Whereas in the past, that educational part part was hugely important because I needed to be able to put myself in position to be able to work, to get to a good company where I can work my way up in that company and be able to make enough resource to take care of my family, my wife, my kids, and also be able to help my mom. I guarantee you were offered some deals. I mean, you were really good funds. 
I guarantee well, you were the, offered some deals. Well, well, what happened is, Seth, I wasn't aware of those. So, so, so I'll say it this way. No deals came directly to me. I did hear about them in the periphery. But uh, it, 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 and I go back to what I said initially, is the, those families that are coming in, if NIL and, and the commodity aspect of it is important to them and the now is important to them, that's what's going to be important to them. For those families who know, to your point, Seth, that that four years is about the next 40 years after you graduate from this school, it's going to be important. So I don't know if we can necessarily control um, what their interests are going to be in their child, in that, in their young person who's getting ready to go to college. I'm not sure we'll be able to control that part of it because I think it's human nature to want to take care of now forgetting and, and, and not necessarily that you're forgetting or neglecting the future is just that that current need blinds you to uh, what's most important, and that is the 40 years after that person is out of school or certainly after the ball stops bouncing. Yeah, I agree, Fonz. And, and Seth, the way I would explain it is the way you did leading into your question to, to Fonz, is in any recruiting situation when you're going, when you, you're the coaching staff representing your school going into to the home of a prospect, the first thing that, that, that's on your mind is we're recruiting you for what you can do for us but here's what we can do for you. And, and for any, and I think we've talked about this before for any student, money is a factor. Money is a factor for any student. Can I get a scholarship? How much will this cost my family? You know, what's in it for me, uh, where they may want to be and balancing how much this school costs versus that school, how much scholarship money I can get all for any student. And it's the same for an athlete. You know, coaches years ago had to deal with something new when when families were asking first and foremost about how can you get my son to the NBA? And that that was new at one point. So this is new. So if a player comes, if you go into a player's home as a coach and the player says, here's the deal I was offered by one of your competitors, can you match that? And you can say, hey, you know, here, here's what here's what our players are getting right now. Here's what we expect for you. But here's what else we can do for you. And we want you to look at this uh, holistically, that we can provide you with this kind of educational opportunity, this kind of job opportunity, these kind of internship, whatever it may be. Uh, it's all a sales job in a way. But, but we had a long, really productive conversation about, about having education first and foremost. And you know, if you want education to be number one, then you have to make it number one. Right. And if that player's not interested in that, then maybe you shouldn't be as interested in that player. Um, I, you know, I know that sounds simplistic, but at the end, you know, we're all saying, hey, you know, we want to get the best players here. And if the best players aren't interested for this reason, then maybe you have to get competitive in that area or you have to move on and say, we need to get the best players that are interested in what we're interested in. I, I know that that sounds simple, but, but I think the answers to some of these lie in the simplicity rather than, than uh, over, not, not overreacting, but mm -hmm. overemphasizing uh, the, the money part, because this is different for all of us. I get it. Um, but this is where we're going. And the idea that we can run this kind of multi-billion dollar industry and the players are just going to be like they were 40 years ago, that isn't going to happen. And, and we knew it back. I think we knew it back then, uh, but we certainly know it now. All right, let's take it to another level. Uh, 
Colter Coburn decided to take his talents you know, to the NBA draft. Question for you, who's the next biggest player in your mind that uh, has to make that decision by Sunday? Sheboy. Yeah, I agree. I think partly, and using Sheboy as an example, is Sheboy will likely be a second-round pick. And, and we've talked about this in the past, is with now NIL on the <laughs> here now, now all of a sudden it makes college basketball a bit more interesting because if I'm going to be a second-round pick, and not get guaranteed money, and it's a 50-50 whether I'm going to be in the G League or get a two-way deal, that kind of thing. Oscar Shibway stays in school, especially at Kentucky, can make a ton of cash in one year, uh, complete his education, and then put himself in, in position to likely be picked in the same second round next year. So there's a financial aspect of it that I think would benefit Shibway if he stayed. This is the way I look at it, and I think – you know, so Shibway is probably the biggest name, Seth, to, to your question. Yeah. Um, I, I do think for every player, whether because we said Jules Bernard at UCLA um, uh, declared what yesterday, a day before. Yeah. And then Jaime Hawkins Jr. decided he was going to come back. Mm-hmm. We're, we're seeing but Jules. Jules is hiring. It. He's not, he's leaving the door open. All right. I don't know, but, but whether he does or doesn't um, maybe 10 years ago or whatever, you know, just say, well, let me pull a number out and say 10 years ago, Jules Bernard declaring for the NBA draft would have raised our eyebrows. And we would have said, what are you doing? I mean, you're not ready to be a big time pro. And it used to be when a guy left early, it was a, it was because they could be a lottery pick or a first round pick. And then it became a second round pick. And now it's just, now it's just anybody that, that wants to give it a shot. And I'm cool with all that. You know, for me, the decision for every player and that player's family has to be first and foremost, am I ready to move on and start my real professional career? If they're ready for that, I I think the G League is a great opportunity to develop on the NBA level. Uh, It's just a question of whether you want to develop on the college level or the G League level or go to Europe. There are a lot of great options for a player. But the dividing line is, do I want to start my next professional life? And if you're, if you want to do that, and you, you you're fully informed and in making that decision, I support every one of these decisions. Um, I have no problem with any of it, and I'm okay with with the uncertainty of a player deciding to test the draft waters. Uh, you know, go to the combine, uh, get all this information, and decide if he wants to come back by by whatever de- arbitrary deadlines we have now. That's all fine with me. Uh, we're getting used to this, and uh, and it's it may be unsettling. It may and it's very difficult for the coaches that are that have their rosters in mind. That's a that's a huge problem for coaches. But at the end of the day, they're well compensated for it. We'll figure it out. Um, but but I'm not as bothered by this as I used to be. Uh, it, it's part of the business, and these are business decisions that these players are making. No, I, I agree. I agree with that. I just I, I look at some some young people and I, I say that there's 60 guys drafted. There's 40 of them that are going to be Americans. There's probably another 20 that are going to be international. The G League in relation, like I think what Fonz was alluding to, the G League in relation to eggs flying free and playing in front of fa- friends and family. Uh, and yeah, sure, you can develop. You can develop in any environment compared to uh, – you know, especially now with NIL, returning, uh, flying on charter planes, staying at Ritz-Carlton's if you're a Power 5 school, uh, having unlimited meals, having some money in your pocket, 
having another year to develop. Now, obviously, the NBA has a thing with you know age. They're all caught up with age. Yet, if you look at some of the guys that have really made it, the Mikel Bridges and Jalen Brunsons and some of these older players that actually stuck around and kind of when they came in, they were ready, more mature to handle it. Now, there have been a ton of young players that have done the same thing. But I, I do think it's uh, – Everyone thinks that next step, and Fonz, you played in the league, and so you probably can address it. And I've never played in the league nor coached in the league, but but it looks easy. I say this all the time. It looks easy. It's like a rite of passage. It's not a rite of passage. The G League's not a rite of passage. A two-way contract's not a rite of passage. Think about going to Europe. Oh, we'll just go to Europe. It doesn't really work that way. You can go to Europe for $60,000 unless you're really special. You're not getting paid as a guy that's not – a late second round draft choice. Maybe if you go to China, you can make a little bit more money, but the money is not where it used to be. So you know, the positive of NIL and all this is that maybe more guys will stick around. I just, I think that when guys do take that leap, they all have an unrealistic expectation because a lot of times they make that decision for personal things, but they also make the decision because there's so much static around them that, that basically uh, they're looking for someone to tell them what they want to hear. Who was that big guy, Jay? You, you you remember the Williams kid at Maryland, who the, all, all the feedback came back, said he was going to be second round or undrafted. We played for Gary uh, towards the end. Played on that national chat. Uh, one of those really, really good teams. Had great hands, like a little undersized. Jordan Williams. Jordan Williams. Jordan, yeah, there you go, of course. Uh, <laughs> like All the information that came back on Jordan Williams was uh, stay in school, stay in school, and stay in school. He found one person to tell him. And I think it drove Gary out of coaching. I mean, truth be known, instead of listening to the people that had unconditional love, he listened to an agent type that basically told him what he wanted to hear. He jumps and, you know, the story is the story. Now, every, every story doesn't end that way. But I, I just think that, it, to me, I'm hoping the, the real benefit of NIL and a long way to get a short to answer will keep those guys in where they're moving towards graduation. They're st- staying part of it. They're having that experience and they're also preparing, you know, like, cause we've got overtime elite, we got G league at night, we got all these things, but how many lives are going to be ruined because guys are unrealistic expectation of, of where they're going. And that's their choice. But as a person that who still thought of himself a little bit as an educator, a coach as an educator, you know, I see a lot of guys that are going to burn bridges and not have anything to show for it at the end. Uh, and, and that, you know, that bothers me for a person that spent 33 yeah. years trying to, you know, we use the term these days, build a bridge, help guys change their lives and their kids' lives. You know, the first first generation graduates create families of graduates. Most of the guys I coach were first generation graduates. And those, so a lot of these kids aren't going to be those graduates that won't be able to change the cycle. And I, I, guess, you know, I guess that's sentimental, Seth. That, that bothers me so. Yeah, but I think you're spot on with all that, Seth. Mm-hmm. But but it, it, it's it's interesting that you know back when we were having these discussions about whether players should be allowed their NIL rights and all these other things, um, and and the we 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 used to talk about the two percent all the time. Only two percent ever go pro. I think those numbers are skewed because they're over Division One, Division Two, and Division Three. When you start talking about the yeah. uh, you know the top level of college basketball, we're talking about a much larger number that actually make money in 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 the sport uh, as professionals. 
And then, and then a lot of them go on to productive careers in the game that don't have to do with playing, whether it's coaching, administrators, right. broadcasters, the like. So there are a lot of avenues. Um, but when we talked about the 2%, we would say, well, you know, the overwhelming majority aren't in that, that category. And it's the same thing with these decisions we're talking about. You know, there, there are so many players, the overwhelming majority are staying in school. Um, and when we talk about transfers, there are more transfers now than ever. And it's unsettling for a lot of us that are older and knew it a different way. But, but it, it doesn't seem like we're talking about the transfer rate among regular students or the number of, of regular students that, that don't finish. Uh, if you are in a university um, arts department, uh, you know, th there are a lot of uh, artists whether they be actors, musicians, whatever, that may not finish school, then decide they want to chase their dream. And they wind up bussing tables and working in low level productions, trying to make it. And very few of them really make it. So the best we can do is provide them with the best information, make the sales pitch and say, hey, we think this is the best place for you, for your development to get your degree, all these different things that, that, you, that you so eloquently talked about. And look, if they're susceptible to, you know, that one voice that you had mentioned, I'm not sure what we can do about that. Um, it, 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 people have to be able to make their individual decisions, but, but we, we have to continue to, uh, to sell what, what is best about the experience and, and hope that, people make the best decisions for them. As long as their decisions are informed, I'm cool with all of it. Uh, it the, the ones I worry about the most or concern me the most are the ones that, that are making what I would call uninformed decisions. Yeah. Um, but but I, I'm not sure, honestly, what we can do about it other than provide them with as much guidance as we can. Yeah. Ron? No, I, I would agree. And I think what happens is, Seth, all of us uh, being our ages and having had our experiences, we, we're almost like big brothers and uncles and dads of college basketball that we want to see, we know what's on the other side and we want to protect young people from poor choices, right? And at least that, that, that's where I'm always coming from. And, and you two have said it, the most difficult part about it is, is, you know, young people have to make choices also. And uh, we, we just hope that the influences around them, to Jay's point about gathering as much information and making informed choices uh, it, it be, it is the norm. Uh, but, but it's hard because I say it to you guys a lot that it is not unusual for young people to come up to me who don't have degrees and, and, and decided to leave early and then try to chase a dream. And then all of a sudden the ball stops bouncing and they're stuck. And again, with no ability to be able to help them because they don't have a degree, they don't have. And, and another thing that's been taken away is uh, Seth, we could, when I was in college, uh, Jay, I'm sure it was the case for you. We could actually work during the summer. And, mm -hmm. and, 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 and with that working now, all of a sudden we're putting a couple nice little bullet points on our resume. Kids aren't able to do that anymore. And so when they make those decisions to leave early and the ball stops bouncing and it didn't go the way that they thought it was going to go, now they're really stuck because they don't have the resources to be able to pay for going uh, back to school to finish. And, it, and it's just sad. And my, my sensibility is to try to protect them from that. 
But again, uh, just like I had to make a choice at 18 and then at 21, when I was considering leaving school early to take care of my wife and my daughter, uh, uh, I had to make a choice. And I had someone like a John McLeod come into my life at that time who was a godsend and convinced me to stay. And uh, wow. And that's worked out really well for me. Uh, and, and in that, I want that same experience for other people, but you can't force that. Let me ask you a question. So yeah. I, I've had this discussion a lot with my my former teammates, and sure. and obviously I played played before you did. Uh, back when leaving early was not not a realistic right. possibility because of the right. money available. There there wasn't yeah. the money available. So for an example, Johnny Dawkins, who was our best player, and he was National Player of the Year in 1986. Uh, he contends that that if he were playing now, he wouldn't have left early. And I differ with him on that. I, I, I think he would have, and he was likely to, because it's a different landscape now. There's far more money available to the top prospects. And you, you pointed out, like, the, these, these players now, even though they're young adults, they're adults. Some yes. of them are married. Some of them have children while they're in college. They are adults with real responsibilities. If you were playing now, so same player, top five pick, all American, all this stuff. If you were playing now, what 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 are what do you think what what do you think would be the likelihood that you would decide after say your sophomore year? Would you be more likely to leave now or more likely to stay, knowing what you know? Jay, Jay is that with the assumption of uh, I I would have been perceived by the NBA and the information coming from the NBA suggested that I was going to be a lottery pick. Same circumstances you had. So oh. sophomore year, junior year, whatever it is, and, and same personal circumstances that you had. Mm -hmm. um, do, do you think the, the, the decision would be different for you now than it was then? Or, or, or would it be, you know, what, 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 what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, if it's I, kind of if a crazy I knew, question, I, but I, but sure, I'm sure. No, your... I got you. No, I got you. If, if I knew I were going to be, that I was going to be a lottery pick, then I would have likely left. And part of that is both my in-law side and though my mom wasn't college educated at the time, uh, that both sides had a strong emphasis on finishing your degree. So I would have been likely like many of the players uh, in the NBA now who I would have gone to be able to take care of my family now. But also I would have been taking a couple classes here there to make sure that I finished my major because the mindset, I probably wouldn't have had that, that mindset now because the mindset was, what happens if I get hurt, <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm going to have to transition into a real job. And so I wanted to be able to protect my downside. My, my mind just works that way. And it, it, it has for a long time. So I would have likely made the same decision knowing that my, my in-laws and my mom would have continued to be on me to make sure that I finished my degree. Hey, Seth, let me <laughs> ask you this one. Let me, let me ask you from, from your coaching career. So, you know, Fonz brought up, um, you know, being able to work during the summer and it, it sparked something in my mind. I mean, when I was playing, we went home during the summer. Yes. Like, like when the, when the, when the season ended and school ended in May or early June, whatever it was, we went home and, and played in our local pro-am leagues and worked out at home okay. and maybe got jobs you know, there, there is nary a player now in basketball that is not in summer school and on campus almost year round. It, it, given how that the business has changed in that regard, um, how do you see that? It, 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 was it better back in the day when the players actually went home 
and had had more of a quote unquote normal life, or is it better now when they're they're there almost year round, working out, uh, going to summer school, all these different things? One of the reasons everyone started going to summer school is to make sure guys graduated on time. Mm-hmm. That was that, like a big thing. You know, we started putting our guys in summer school. They they picked up six credits in summer school. That was eighteen credits in three years. And they came at the end of freshman year, and those three years prior, they could pick up eighteen credits. So we we knew that we could get them out the door with a degree. And that was a really big thing. Uh, I think then what's more often, you know, it is the outside influences. You know, everyone's got a guy, everyone's got a workout guru, everyone's got something. You know, the idea of trying to keep your guys on campus, eliminating the static was important as well, especially today. And then the NCAA allowed you to work out for six weeks with your team. Uh, I think that, was it better? I, I, I like the idea of being able to, uh, have a spring practice per se with those six weeks with your team uh, to be able to touch and spend time with them and, and without the pressure of winning and losing uh, player development. I think that's a good thing, but I do think it puts pressure. But now again, now with NIL it makes no difference. They're going to be making money in the summer. You got to remember now in the summer, they get cost of attendance. They get Pell Grant money. So I, I'm not sure you guys got that back when you guys played. If, if you qualify for, Pell Grant money in the summer, you get a Pell check for about $3,500. You get your cost of attendance, depending on the school, for about $3,500, some, some even more in summer school. Uh, then, it, you know, if you put NIL on top of that, you know, guys are going to do pretty well, you know, unlimited meals, you know, a lot of, you know, like a lot of guys, my guys that worked in the summer actually worked in the summer and sent money home. Mm-hmm. And that was 10 years ago. I mean, a lot of guys have done that, but I, I think it's good to have guys on campus. I don't think they should be there a whole summer session. I've always said one summer session is plenty. One summer session, get those six credits, uh, get get workouts, individual work, whatever. And I, I've always believed to send guys home. I've sent my, guy, my guys home, even if they were in the second summer session, we wouldn't start back and do anything team function until the day before the first day of classes. Our rule was uh, if you were in academic good standing, you could go home during the summer and they just send you home with your weightlifting routine and all of that stuff. You know, back when I used to work these Nike Skills Academies, it was, it was a lot that was really fun about that. Yeah. Um, but I used to ride back and forth on the bus with the players and you'd be able to talk to them and learn more mm-hmm. about them as people. And it was really helpful for the NBA draft for all kinds of different things. But I was with a player from a Big Ten school and I talked to him about summer school. And so they were essentially required to be on campus all summer. And I and and I said, well, geez, that, so you go to both sessions of summer school. And he said, no, we we're only allowed to go to one. And it turned out that this particular school wanted them in summer school and wanted them there to work out for the summer, but didn't want them to get too far ahead. Because if they got too far ahead academically, they'd be more likely to leave. And, yeah. uh, and so, the, you know, it, it, it's amazing. And there's it's nothing sinister about it. I'm not suggesting there is. But, but everybody's going to make decisions based upon retention on, you know, those are market forces, too. Yeah. And yeah. so on one hand, you want the players to get ahead and maybe graduate early, all these different things. But then, you know, then if they graduated early, they'd be more likely to leave all that stuff. Um, so there are so many forces at work in this. And that's why I've always believed that that contracts are the best way to go about this. Um, but look, reasonable minds can differ on that. The business is changing and it's going to continue to change. That That's part of life. 
But uh, uh, going back to your original question, Seth, like I, I really thought that that the the, the premise of your question uh, w- was really a sales pitch. That those are the things that you need to reinforce with these players. Here's what is the benefit to you, and keep hammering that home to have a development plan for the player, but both yes. as a player and as a person. Yes, yes. And yes. and I know I know everybody has that. Um, but that's going to continue to be, I think, not only important, it's going to continue to be vital as we go forward uh, to um, to let the players know that that here's what you're getting that may not have a, a current monetary benefit, but is going to be beneficial for the rest of your life and, yep. and have that as part of the part of the pitch to these players. And look, you can't you can't make them like it's the old lead a horse to water can't make them drink thing. You can't make them you can't make them do everything you want them to do. But but the more information they have, the the, the better their decisions are going to be. Yeah. yeah.